0: Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer and broadcaster and Elvis fan. But recently when I posted on social media comments about Baz Luhrmann's movie, Elvis, some folks said, I know nothing about Elvis and that I couldn't be a real Elvis fan. Well, that's funny because I've been called an Elvis nut ever since I was a kid battling for the king against Beatle fans. And more seriously, the truth is, I'm not only a lifelong Elvis fan, everything I became professionally, I owe to Elvis Aaron Presley, who gave me the strength to dream, as he says in my nearly lifelong anthem, If I Can Dream. But before I elaborate on my reaction to Baz Luhrmann's movie, let me tell you how I became a fan. It may be your story too, but... Of course, if you're bored by this idea, you can flick forward about 10 minutes in this podcast to my focus on the film. Okay, it all started way back in the 20th century, when I was nine, and my teenage cousin Katrina took me to see G.I. Blues. I didn't really want to go. I would no interest in this singer, who I once thought, when I saw his name on a bubblegum card at a time I was learning to read, was called Elvis Parsley. But when his real name appeared on the screen in the Adelphi cinema that Saturday afternoon, I was almost literally blown out of my seat. I couldn't believe the screams. The last time I heard screams like that was at the blob. And Elvis looked nothing like that lump of red jelly. Besides, this time, much to my amazement and delight, only girls were screaming. And they screamed again whenever this Elvis fella smiled, sang, or even said, huh, in a song called Shopping Around. But it was not much later that something truly magical happened. Yet, before I tell you what that was, let me say that as a child, I had a wild imagination, as children should have. Either way, after Elvis beckoned for all those kids at a puppet show, and it seemed to me... The 600 or so kids in the cinema just sing along with wooden heart. I swear I heard him say, that means you too, Joseph. Then I heard the music from the Twilight Zone. No, I didn't. I'm kidding. Instead, for the first time in my life, I answered the king's call, sang along, and the louder I sang, the more I felt like I was flying into outer space. The only thing I could compare that feeling to was singing at mass with my mum, our favourite hymn, Holy God! Now, of course, I realised that Elvis had given me my first out-of-body experience, or, if you like, sense of transcendence. Either way, I became a fan, and I needed to know more about the man. So a few weeks later, one afternoon, when I was walking home from school, and I saw in a shop window the cover of a comic on which it said, This is Elvis. Now it can be told. The fabulous story of a fabulous guy. I ran into the shop bought the comic and started reading it on the street. And soon I began to fly again. Because I saw in one drawing Elvis, at roughly my age, coming home from school with the same kind of school bag I had. Then I read that in Tupelo, where he was born, Elvis was, it said, just a kid like any other kid. And that made me think, if back then he was a kid like any other kid, that means he was a kid like me. Then I read that before making his first record for his mother, something I liked about Elvis instantly, because I loved my mum, he was a truck driver. That's what my dad was. And all of this, in an instant, made me decide. If Elvis Presley, who'd once been a truck driver, could become the king of pop, as he was called, then I myself could do or be anything in life when I grow up. So you see, Elvis had liberated my dreams and made me a dreamer. So much so that a few weeks later, while I was watching a movie called Deadline Midnight, one speech by a sub-editor made working for a newspaper, especially bringing to people information they otherwise might not get, seem as noble as being a knight of the round table. And so I decided that the anything I must become when I grow up is a journalist. And my childhood flight didn't end there, far from it. For my 10th birthday, my dad gave me a copy of an old Elvis hit called I Need Your Love Tonight. The moment I heard Elvis sing the first line backed by a band playing faster than I'd ever heard, I knew this was infinitely better than even Elvis's latest single, Rockahoola Baby. And that it must be what someone told me was called Real Rock and Roll. So you could say that on my 10th birthday, I was practically reborn. I discovered the first music I truly loved. Soon, I'd tell my classmates that a new group called The Beatles singing I Want to Hold Your Hand sounded like sissies compared to The King singing I Need Your Love Tonight. And then, four years later, I discovered that the blues wasn't just a word Elvis used in his great song, A Mess of Blues. It was a feeling I felt after my father left us. That's when I learned that a sad song sung by Elvis could put words to things I didn't know how to say. And the song in question called Lonely Man. I played so much that my mother had to say to me at one point, please, Joseph, don't play it so often. It only reminds me of how lonely you are for your daddy. I didn't want to upset my mother, so I said okay, but I play lonely man so often because you can tell from the way Elvis sings it that he knows how it feels to be lonely. She said, I know love, and I get the same feeling when I hear him singing, are you lonesome tonight? Even that was a glorious moment of communion between a mother and her son. Not only that, soon afterwards, in October 1966, I bought and heard for the first time Elvis' 1960 gospel album, His Hand in Mine. And when I read in the sleeve notes that gospel music brought a sense of spiritual ease to Elvis and listened to the album, I realised that songs like He Knows Just What I Need were doing the same thing for me. Then, when I heard Working on the Building, and realised it sounded just like, that's all right, Mama, I danced around my bedroom in delight. And all of this primed me to an immaculate degree for Elvis' 1967 gospel album, How Great Thou Art, and the similarly inspirational singles, You'll Never Walk Alone, and Ultimately, If I Can Dream. The first time I heard If I Can Dream, here in Dublin, on December the 4th, 1968, the night after Elvis's NBC TV special was broadcast in America, which I hoped had gone well for him, I made those lines he sings so soulfully. As long as a man has the strength to dream, he can redeem his soul and fly. My motto. Now fast forward to near midnight on August the 16th, 1977, for some inexplicable reason, I'd taken out the Speedway LP and was listening to Suppose, a ballad I'd always loved. And as usual, when it got to my favourite part of the song, I closed my eyes and held my breath as if I was trying to help Elvis hit those final high notes. As he sang, it's impossible to imagine the world without a star, but imagining no you is more impossible by far. After he did hit that high note, I exhaled and thought, imagining no you in my life, El, is even more impossible. And then I smiled. Less than five minutes later, the phone rang. It was my girlfriend, Stephanie. She said, I've got terrible news, Joseph. It's Elvis. He's dead. I said, no, he can't be. Stephanie said, he is. Your mother heard it on TV, phoned and asked me to tell you. She hadn't the heart to. She said, I know what this news will do to Joseph. Elvis was his life. I went back into my apartment, wept all night, listened mostly to Elvis's gospel albums, and I prayed that he might finally have found peace in the valley. The next morning, having read all the newspapers, I found the editor of a rock magazine I'd begun to work for as a photographer and I said to him, not one obituary I've read gets even close to capturing what Elvis's death means to us fans. So I asked him if I could at least try to write such an article. As it transpired, I wrote three articles, but one in particular about growing up as an Elvis fan seemed to do for many fellow Elvis fans what Lonely Man had done for me the first time I heard it. Namely, put words to feelings they had. One DJ on Radio Warren, Ireland's only national station, said it was the best article he'd read about Elvis's death even better than anything in the New Musical Express, the most famous music paper in the world. Someone else said, I was an overnight success. Talk about irony. Elvis's death, had finally given birth to the dream he inspired me to follow. But there was another aspect to all this. On the afternoon of August the 17th, I'd picked up a newspaper and a headline literally stopped me in my tracks. It said, Elvis was a junkie, says ex-wife. That's why in the article I wrote, if it wasn't bad enough losing the man, now we fans have to deal with the fact that he was secretly using every kind of drug apart, it seems, from street drugs like heroin. For the first time in my life, I felt betrayed by Elvis and disillusioned. He'd always said he didn't use drugs. How was I to know that nearly nine months later, I'd find my father, Joe Jackson Sr., dead from a fall at home at 50? Then, days afterwards, I'd read his diary and discover that he had secretly been addicted to the same kind of pills that helped hasten the death of the king. Something that even my father, who was no fan of Elvis, said he found sad. Okay, before we get back to Baz, let's fast forward to March 1st, 1985. On that life-changing day, a conversation with another of my heroes, Leonard Cohen, left me feeling, here's that word again, transcendent, so much so, that I decided I had to become a professional interviewer if only to track down more of my heroes to talk with. But I also decided to walk a kind of pilgrim path as a Presley fan and seek out anyone who'd ever been influenced by, worked with, or knew Elvis. This led to me talking with rock stars such as Sinead O'Connor, Bono and Nick Cave about the King. And better still, meeting the likes of Sam Phillips, Gordon Stoker and June Winico. And all of that led to countless articles, and to me making no less than 15 radio documentaries about Elvis, two that told his life story, 12 that focused on his best albums, and Conversations About the King, which, to my delight, was nominated for a Music Documentary Award in 2018. How could all of that not colour, some might say discolour, my reaction to even the trailer for Baz Luhrmann's movie? And it did. Only minutes after seeing the trailer for the first time, I made a podcast in which I said that if Baz made Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks, a hero, or even tried to get us to sympathise with the man, it would be a travesty of Elvis's life. And I wasn't too impressed by the fact that Parker was telling Presley's story. Or that the movie seemed to be more about their relationship than Elvis. We're still in the trailer. Tom Hanks neither looked nor sounded like the Colonel and he was given lines to speak that I suspect Parker would not have even understood. That said, I'd recently become an associate producer of the feature film The Ghost of Richard Harris so I know how hard it can be to raise finance and I know that Lurman had problems raising finance for his film and that those problems must have eased When he signed the highly bankable Tom Hanks. But then I wondered if before agreeing to play Parker, Hanks insisted that his role be central. Then I read an interview in which Baz, after pushing to one side the love between Elvis and Priscilla, said that the love story that really soars in my movie is the love story between Parker and Presley. The word projection came to mind. Likewise, when I saw Luhrmann's lingering close-up shots of Austin Butler's pumping crotch during the Louisiana Hayride scene, it seemed to me too much like he was reducing Elvis to the title Elvis the Pelvis, a label the king hated. Then I read Baz wanted to present Elvis as the first punk rocker, which he wasn't. And I didn't buy into Luhelman's claim that he couldn't use Elvis's 50s recordings because sonically they wouldn't work in a modern movie. Many directors have used even Elvis's earliest recordings such as Mystery Train. It seemed to me that Baz was more concerned with pumping his pumping protege into the public eye. Also, if he lied about that, what wouldn't he lie about in relation to Elvis? You can call it my suspicious mind. Even so, I went along to the movie hoping I was wrong on all counts— And the countless Elvis fans, plus people who really should know, like Priscilla and Lisa, got it right when they said the movie was a masterpiece. And as I sat in the cinema just before the film started, I reminded myself to try not to forget to remember that Baz Luhrmann doesn't make documentaries and isn't too concerned about historical accuracy. He makes pop operas. And to him, it all seems to be about the rush, the hit, And maybe replicating a drugs trip. So, I smoked a J, dropped a tab, did a line of coke and waited. I'm kidding. Again. But I did think, "Okay, Baz, baby, take me for a ride on your mystery train. And I loved the opening, with Baz's logo cheekily based on the design of the King's greatest entertainer in Las Vegas belt. And the sound of Elvis's vocal line from Suspicious Minds, isolated and left hanging in the air, followed by a barrage of images and split-screen effects. I didn't even apply that suspicious mind to what some might see as Luherman's astoundingly egotistical act of conceit in daring to include in the opening scene a glass globe, just like the one Orson Welles let slip from his hand at the start of Citizen Kane. I reckon that Baz was just teasingly toying with that kind of cinematic iconography and certainly not trying to tell us that his film would match the greatest film ever made. Sadly, Baz soon began to lose me with his lies. I understood that this was, as the title said, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis and not necessarily the truth about Elvis and that facts had to be fictionalised and telegraphed. But from as near the start of the movie as makes no damn difference, it was as though Lu had to, narcissistically maybe, rewrite Elvis's story to call attention to himself, and that he didn't believe the actual story was innately inspiring and even awe-inspiring. For example, Elvis's dad didn't go to jail for six months when his son was 12, as Baz suggests. He went when Elvis was three and as such, hardly likely to be reading Captain Marvel comics and fantasising about breaking his father out of jail and flying with him to the Rock of Eternity, to set a concept from that comic series that Elvis did love later in life. Besides, and here we get to what I see as the hole in the soul of Luherman's movie. The rock of eternity Elvis Aaron Presley was reaching towards from the time he could think, talk, stand, walk and sing, especially hymns like I'll Fly Away while attending services at his local First Assembly of God Church, was the Christian concept of heaven. It was not the home of the wizard Shazam or simply a mysterious mountain or rock that existed somewhere in space. Robert Kollwitz, in his sleeve notes for what I now realise was Elvis's first Back to Roots album, His Hand in Mine, brings it all back home in this sense. He writes, Like many other American small towns, Tupelo is a place where families grow together in harmony and heartfelt religious belief lies at the centre of life. Every day began with a devotion, at school and in the Presley home. One of the most joyous Presley family memories is of mother, father and young Elvis, then only a toddler, singing together in Tupelo's First Assembly Church of God. Before Elvis's beloved mother Gladys died a few years ago, she delighted in recalling, just a little fellow, he would slide off my lap, run down the aisle and scramble up to the platform of the church. He would stand looking up at the choir and try to sing with them. He was too little to know the words, but he could carry the tune. I believe that for the rest of his life, Elvis Presley continued that journey towards the platform of the church, and all this phrase signifies. It certainly seems to me that Elvis, as a singer and musician, was always trying, ultimately, to be part of and to recreate the sound of a gospel choir. Kollowitz, who may have gotten guidance from Elvis when it came to these sleeve notes, goes on to say, alluding to gospel music, bound up tightly with his birthplace, one of the most vivid and touching reminders of his mother and the wonderful life she helped create for him, it remains to this day a source of everlasting comfort and spiritual ease. In 1972, Elvis said much the same thing, namely that gospel music, white gospel, was the first music he remembered hearing as a child and that it always put his mind at ease and still did. But let me explain why I stress their white gospel and why Baz excluding from his version of the Elvis story its seminal influence and focusing almost exclusively on the influence of black gospel is bound to get under my skin. Back in 1989, Sam Phillips said to me, and here he could be talking about Baz, people get it wrong when they say Elvis was influenced only by black music. He was influenced just as much by white gospel and country and both to me are the most underrated roots musics in the history of rock and roll. When Sam Philip said that I had a little epiphany of sorts and it set me off on a secondary pilgrim path as a Presley fan. I decided to try in my own tiny way to rectify that wrong. Partly because it struck me as a variation of that tired old rock and roll trope that everything black musicians create is cool and everything honkies, especially hillbillies, create isn't. And Luherman, sadly, perpetrates that lie, suggesting that Elvis became legitimate only after he discovered black gospel and R&B, shook off his hillbilly roots and sang like a black man bollocks to that as we say in Ireland. That's like saying we Irish became legitimate as a race only when we began to speak the Queen's English. So let's look at the King and his links to country music. In 1970 Elvis said that apart from gospel country was the first music he remembered hearing on the Grand Ole Opry on the radio and the truth is that he and Gladys Presley listened to country on Western radio all the time. It said that by the age of eight, Elvis could sing countless country songs that he knew off by heart. Not only that, around the same time, which is say, 1943, Elvis was befriended by Mississippi Slim, who was called the only real country singer in Tupelo. He even had his own show on the local radio station WELO may have backed Elvis on guitar when he sang on that show and is said to have taught him guitar chords before he even owned a guitar. All of this would help explain why when Elvis was 10 and he entered a talent show during the Mississippi Alabama Fair and Dairy show in Tupelo, which was broadcast on WELO, he sang a country weepy called Old Shep. It had been a hit for Red Foley. But gospel remained Elvis's first love. And according to Patricia Job Pierce's book, The Ultimate Elvis, not long after he received a baptism of the Spirit at a Pentecostal church at the age of eight, he set his sights on becoming a singer in a gospel quartet and started listening to and studying their music, including the black female quartet, The Willing Four Soft Singers. But none of this makes it into Baz Luhrmann's movie, which starts the tale of Elvis' childhood when he was 12 and after his family was relocated to Shake Rag and Tupelo. And sadly, even though I hate to be a buzzkill, Baz, apart from excluding all I've told you thus far about Elvis' childhood, really pushes credulity to the limit during the Shake Rag scenes. And I'm not talking about even the fact that pounding into the ground is Captain Marvel analogy, Lou has Elvis walking around with a cardboard flash of lightning pinned to his overalls. I'll let that go. I'm talking more about Shake Rag itself and the way Baz represents what's supposed to have happened to Elvis in Shake Rag. For one thing, the Presley family didn't actually live in Shake Rag, an area that was made up mostly of shotgun shacks like the one Elvis's daddy built in East Tupelo in which Elvis was born. They lived at 1010 North Green Street at the edge of Shake Rag, in an area called The Hill. And the difference made a difference. The Presleys were only one of four white families in a black area, but even if some of their neighbours were employed doing the same kind of job Gladys did, like working in a laundry, there also were more well-to-do blacks, teachers and so on. The tendency to represent all blacks in those days as so-called dirt poor is racist. And even though Elvis was apparently part of a gang led by his black buddy Sam Bell, he couldn't have been the only white kid in the gang. And it's likely he already was colourblind, by which I mean he paid no mind to the colour of a person's skin. And so it would remain, I believe, for the rest of Presley's life. Claims that he was racist, which probably can be traced back to a dubious article in Jet Magazine in 1956, with his alleged quote, all blacks are good for is shining my shoes and buying my records, have no basis in truth. Black singer Joanne Jackson, who bought Elvis's records at the time, said she heard that quote back then and didn't believe it, and that by the time we did the interview in the 1990s, it had long since been discredited. All of this leads us to a pivotal scene in Baz Luhrmann's version of Elvis's story. At one point, He has Presley in Shake Rag with his black buddies peeking through a crack in the wall of a juke joint and discovering Arthur Crudup, I think it's supposed to be, singing Blind Lemon Jefferson's Black Snake Moan. Baz seems to want us to believe that this was when Elvis discovered Rhythm and Blues. And then, fast as Captain Marvel's lightning bolt, we see Elvis race over to a black sanctified church revival meeting in a nearby tent discovering black gospel music, being mesmerised, invited inside, joining in the fevered singing and dancing, blending all this in his mind, and that that then led to That's Alright Mama, and by extension, to rock and roll. Well, bless my soul. It's a wonderful scene, beautifully shot and edited and hugely exciting. But with all due respect to Baz, the fact is that as with too much in his movie, this is comic book territory, No more sophisticated than the comic book version of Elvis's story I read when I was nine. Never has it been reported that any of this happened. Yes, there was a revival tent in Shake Rag and Elvis did often attend services there where he heard frenzied music played on piano, guitars, harmonica, drums and tambourines and he often joined in. But as I said earlier, he'd already gone through his baptism of the Spirit when he was eight. And during First Assembly of God church services, members of the congregation played piano and guitars, they fell on the floor in trances, they spoke in voices and they roared hallelujah when they finally felt the Holy Ghost move into their souls. It wasn't only blacks who were reaching for heaven or hoping to find even temporary transcendence. Besides It's doubtful that Elvis, already a lover of most forms of music, and one of whose heroes was country singer Jimmy, the breakman Rogers, who recorded with Louis Armstrong. Yep, black and white long before rock and roll. And who has since been inducted into the country, folk and blues halls of fame. Wasn't familiar with the blues. Even R&B. Elvis may even have seen the likes of Muddy Waters, who often played in Tupelo, and stayed in Shake when he did. Some even say Elvis met Muddy in those days. That said, there's no doubt that Elvis's love of black gospel and black rhythm and blues, or rhythm and blues, and folk blues, deepened on a daily basis during the year he lived in Shake Rag. And all of that must have made Memphis the musical melting pot of the South Seemed like heaven on earth to Elvis when he and his family moved there in 1948. In fact, it also was in 1948 that WIDA, the Black Music Station, was founded in Memphis, and Elvis became an avid listener. But he also loved listening to KWEM, where he heard more Black music and also country and pop. Then, during the early 1950s, he began to attend all night gospel sings at the Memphis Auditorium, where he was befriended by one of his future backing vocalists, J.D. Sumner. He remembered letting Elvis in a side gate because he couldn't afford the admission fee. And that reminds me, Gordon Stoker once told me that it was backstage at one of those gospel sings he and the Jordanaires met Elvis for the first time and that Elvis said to them, if I ever get a recording deal, I'll use you guys. That made them laugh, but not cruelly because anyone who knew the kid knew he wanted to sing gospel. And during that period, Elvis's favourite gospel quartet was the Statesman. He not only loved their music, he also studied, maybe for future reference, their stage act. Elvis loved in particular the vocal styling of lead singer Jake Hess, who had said he imitated it first, and he loved the bass line sung by Jim Big Chief Wetherington. Add to that the fact that he loved the boogie-woogie piano playing of Howie Lister, complete with piano bench rock and rolling that left strands of sweat-drenched hair hanging over his eyes. You don't have to look too far to see that he also influenced Jerry Lee Lewis. But all of this makes nonsense of the claim that Elvis simply went to the East Trigg Baptist Church in Memphis, which he loved attending, often after services at the First Assembly Church of God and that he ripped off the style of its preachers and performers. Likewise, the suggestion that after Elvis began to go see black musicians like Junior Parker, Rufus Thomas and Ike Turner at the Green Owl Club, he copied their stage acts. Let's face it, no one, black or white, or any colour in between, moved on stage quite like Elvis would. But there's something else that's missing from Lurman's movie even though many see it as a definitive turning point for the teenage Elvis Presley. On April the 9th, 1953, he sang during a so-called annual minstrel show at Humes High School, Teresa Brewer's pop hit Till I Waltz With You Again. Twenty years later, Elvis recalled, It was amazing how popular I became at school after singing that song. A comment that has a darker subtext I'll get to later. Either way, I suspect that all of this led directly to that Saturday morning three months later when, after starting work at the Crown Electric Company, Elvis parked outside Sun Records, that truck I read about as a kid, went inside and paid four dollars to make a private recording of two songs. But life is no fairy tale. The record wasn't. For his mother's birthday. Elvis later admitted that he just wanted to know how he would sound on a disc. But he can't have been hoping he would be discovered by Sam Phillips. He knew that Phillips recorded mostly race records by the likes of Junior Parker, and in contrast with that kind of R&B, the tunes Elvis chose to record were two more ballads. The pop hits, My Happiness, and That's When Your Heartaches Begin. Either way, Sam wasn't there that day. So instead, his assistant, Marion Keisker, recorded Elvis' demo and she secretly put part of one song on a tape to play later for Phillips. Marion also wrote a note that said, Good ballad singer, hold. So you see, Elvis was discovered that day. But it was not by Sam Phillips. It was by Marion That's why Elvis once said, if Marion Keisker hadn't pushed me into Sam Phillips' arms, I'd still be a truck driver. And when Elvis returned to Sun Records in January 1954 to record another demo, he chose two more ballads. I'll Never Stand In Your Way, the Joni James country pop hit, and It Wouldn't Be The Same Without You, which had been a hit for singing cowboy Jimmy Wakely. Not a trace of or and bay. And Elvis did meet Sam that day, who recorded the demos, but it said that Phillips wasn't too impressed. Nor was he impressed, four months later, after he phoned Elvis at home and asked him to come over to Sun Records and record a demo called Without You, another ballad. But then came the decision that would lead to That's Alright Mama and its equally revolutionary B-side Blue Moon of Kentucky, as well as Create Rockabilly and, in time, Reroute the history of rock and roll and popular music. Good trick, eh? Sam asked lead guitar player Scotty Moore and bass player Bill Black to work with the kid. That was in May 1954. But Baz really misses the mark and does all a great disservice. When he has Scotty, I think it is, say to Elvis to try calm his nerves before their first Louisiana Hayride show, We Got Started by clowning around. Like hell they did. He also gets it wrong by saying Sam was looking for a singer to front a country band. Like hell he was. Scotty and Bill did play part-time in a country band called the Starlight Wranglers. But this, their gig with Elvis, was an extracurricular activity and it didn't please their fellow band members when they found out about it. Besides, there's a deeper dimension to all this, and it's rarely, if ever, explored. And it has more to do with psychology than music. Sam Phillips told me in 1989 that the teenage Elvis Presley was riddled with, and crippled by, feelings of social and personal inferiority. He could barely look people in the eye when they talked to him and he tended to look down at the ground to mumble his words and stammer. Hearing that surprised me. But now I know that from the time Elvis arrived in Memphis, from what many must have seen as the backwoods of Tupelo, people made fun of his shabby clothes, his overalls, trousers that were too short, shoes with cardboard covering holes, and the fact that sometimes he didn't wear shoes at all, which hadn't been a problem back in Tupelo. And in school, teachers and students mocked his low-class, gooder English, and that tendency to mumble. Yet here's the best part. All of that prompted Presley, in a sublime act of defiance that would soon define the look of countless rock-and-rollers, and and still does, to start buying flashy clothes at Lansky Brothers, where mostly blacks shopped, and that specialised in zoot-suits, peg trousers, and brightly coloured shirts. But Sam Phillips knew this was false bravado, so he teamed Elvis up with, in particular, the extroverted Bill Black, who he hoped would help haul Elvis out of his shell, even if at times his tendency to shout things like, hey Presley, why don't you quit mumbling and just sing the goddamn song, had the opposite effect, at which point the gentler Scotty would tell Elvis not to take Bill seriously. However, clowning around, was, as I say, not how they got their sound. During the three-month period between the session for Without You, which they didn't play on, incidentally, and the That's All Right sessions, they were woodshedding, as Sam described to me and you shall soon hear. By that he meant they spent countless hours trying to find the right sound and the right song. The first song they recorded on July the 5th or 6th, 1954, Leon Payne's country hit, I Love You Because, was neither the sound nor the song. But the next was both. Yet let me say something about That's All Right. In 1966, I read a 1956 magazine called Elvis Speaks. And in it, he's quoted as saying, I never sang a rhythm song before I recorded that's all right, Mama. Now, I'm not saying that quote was at the forefront of my mind when I interviewed Sam. It wasn't. But I'd never forgotten seeing in that comic I read when I was nine the note Marian Keisker wrote that said, Good ballad singer hold. And I knew that Elvis always loved Dean Martin. So, after Sam told me the usual story of how That's All Right came about, I took another tilt on the tail pushed him in another direction. And as you'll hear, he got pissed.
1: Uh, what happened on that is that the sessions that we'd had, or what we call woodshedding, you know, uh-huh. uh, that uh, after I put Scott and Bill with him and they'd go and rehearse and they'd come and say, we believe we got something. I'd listen and in my opinion, if we had it, fine. Cause God, I was looking for it each time, you know. But I would send them away, but I'd send them away in a manner that I could hear a lot of great potential. But we weren't there. And uh, that's all right. Mama was uh, something that he cut out on in the studio, see. Playing around after we were getting ready, just stop. Not at at
0: your suggestion. Not Mm -hmm. at your suggestion. Because someone said now that you came in with the record and said, do that. So that's, no. Okay, no, no, good. Well, I'd like to address this, because if these are the, the myths that are gaining currency, it's better to throw them out the window by addressing them. You know what I mean? It's the suggestion that Elvis Presley came in and wanted to be either a gospel singer or a pop singer, and you had a vision of delivering black music to white people, and you made
1: him go along with that vision. No, I didn't make him. I influenced him. But uh, no, I, I convinced him. I didn't. But you know, I, 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 the way I dealt with, I was in charge of the sessions. Right. You understand? But I didn't go in dictatorially, and 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 say you can't. Never. Go. But you're a very strong individual, no one can Very strong. And they
0: were very young boys, and so. Very,
1: very young, and they knew damn well that I knew what the hell I was trying to achieve because I took the time to explain just like I am with you and you getting impatient. I'm not getting impatient. Do you think I'm getting impatient? No. But hell, you taking up too much of my time. I'm trying to tell you okay. uh, uh that I ain't going to write a book for you. I'm giving you some stuff that is that is unbelievable, but totally believable.
0: Sam Phillips, one of my all-time heroes, who I now realize was trying to produce our interview the same way he produced records by the likes of Elvis. And despite him saying there that I was wasting his time, it was Sam who extended our one-hour interview to nearer three hours. And afterwards, when I thanked him for helping to give poor kids like me all over the world a voice, Sam said, and I thank you, Joe, for coming all the way from Ireland to interview me. I think you get exactly what Sam Phillips and Sun Records were all about. Maybe I do, and maybe I don't. But I sure as hell find it hard to see as fair the way Baz Luhrmann marginalises Sam Phillips, Marion Kuisker, Scotty Moore, and Bill Black, making them little more than props for Presley. Even so, Baz deserves praise for linking That's All Right to Gospel, even if he roots it in only black gospel. Back in 1993... During a phone chat, Sam Phillips and I went further than we'd gone before on this subject, either individually or together. We both agreed that every song Elvis recorded, from My Happiness to, say, Unchained Melody during his final tour, was a spiritual that stemmed from his fundamentally religious nature. Phillips even said, the secular religious divide applied to Elvis's music is bullshit. It is. But to understand that, you have to go back to the source, as I've tried to do in this podcast and will do in two more related to Lohrman's movie. Sadly, he doesn't. And my chat with Sam in 93 led me to say in an article a decade later, which I wrote to mark the 50th anniversary of That's All Right, that Elvis sang it, instinctively or otherwise, as if it were a gospel song. In other words, he turned what had been a loping blues into a life-affirming song of joy. And since I wrote that article nearly 20 years ago, I've learned what may have prompted Presley to do so, again, instinctively or otherwise. Less than a week before that recording session, Bill Lyles and R.W. Blackwood From the Blackwood brothers, whose music Elvis loved almost as much as his mother did, were both killed in a plane crash. When Elvis heard the news, he cried like a baby, and so did his girlfriend, Dixie Locke, both of whom had often seen the Blackwoods perform at their local First Assembly of God church. They also attended the funerals of Lyles and Blackwood three days or so before Elvis recorded That's All Right. And there's more. Elvis had once applied to join the Songfellows, but they turned him down. He was told either that he couldn't sing, or more likely, that he couldn't sing harmony. Either way, Elvis was heartbroken by that rejection. But after the funeral, Cecil Blackwood, who left the Songfellows to join the Blackwoods, told Elvis he could take his place and that this was at last his chance to become a professional gospel singer. It said Elvis told Sam Phillips he wanted to join the Songfellows, but Sam convinced him that this was a bad idea, and signed him to a recording contract. Elvis told Cecil Blackwood, "I done signed to sing the blues at Sun." Some people who saw the blues as the devil's music may have thought that was the moment Elvis sold his soul to the devil. Ricky Skaggs once said something to me along those lines, claiming that Elvis had a calling from the Lord which he ignored and was destined to die as he did. I disagreed. But one wonders what would have happened if Elvis Presley had joined the Songfellows. He might still be alive. And if not singing with them, maybe managing the group. One thing is certain. If Elvis had become a professional gospel singer, Baz Luherman would not have made a movie. About his life. In my next podcast, I delve deeper into Luherman's movie. I thank you for listening to this one, which incidentally is the longest I've ever made, but Elvis Presley is worth it. And if you want to read some of my Elvis articles, check out my website, jojacksoninterviewer.com, where there also are links to my two ebooks about El, Glory Days with Elvis, and Elvis, Sam Phillips and Sun Records Revisited. Thanks again.